from Los Angeles, California. This is the Writer's Strike Chronicles, and I'm Tanya Barnes. Hello, everybody. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, 2008. In today's episode, the first of a two-part series, I have the distinct honor of speaking with Patrick Verone, the president of the Writers Guild of America West. But first, a couple of news and notes. First up, later today, the results of the 2008 Minimum Basic Agreement ratification vote will be announced just as soon as all the votes are tallied. Writers Guild of America members will be sent an email informing them of the final results in the afternoon. For all information, be sure to check the Writers Guild website at wga.org. Second up in these final two episodes featuring Patrick Verone, I wrap up the Writer's Strike Chronicles podcast series. I am working on making the transition from producing a daily podcast about the Writer's Strike to a monthly podcast about new media in the arts and entertainment here in Los Angeles. It's called Brave New Media, and I'll be focusing on the convergence of arts and entertainment, information and technology. But I'm going to take some time off for a few weeks to get back in the swing of things, get some jobs, and frankly, take a break. But for those listeners who want to learn more about it and what I'm up to, I invite you to join me at my new website, bravenewmedia.tv. And even though I'll be taking a hiatus from podcasting, check out my blog there at bravenewmedia.tv and say hi. I'm always happy to hear from my virtual friends and listeners. Okay, let's get started with a conversation I have with Patrick Verone. Here, we learn more about Patrick's history before he became a writer. Then, we discover what got him in the Guild, and also the many things he's done in service to the Guild. Then, we'll wrap up Part 1 with Patrick sharing with us about the contract. Okay, here we go. My guest today is Patrick Verone, President of the Writers Guild of America West. Thank you for being on our show today. Nice to be here. Mr. Verone, in 1981, you graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College, where you were an editor for the Harvard Lampoon. Then you got your law degree and became a member of the California and Florida State Bars. And from my research, you specialized in intellectual property law. Is that correct? You've obviously checked Wikipedia. No, the, no, I went uh, to the California State Bar Association. Well, it's interesting. My uh, legal career began in Florida, uh, where I grew up and went to high school, and I returned there to practice law in the mid-'80s. And uh, although I had taken intellectual property and entertainment law courses at Boston College Law School, there isn't a very big entertainment law practice in southwest Florida, in Fort Myers, Florida. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I continued to uh, flex those muscles and uh, to keep them from atrophying. So it really wasn't, though, until I moved out to California and took the California bar in 1988 when we were on strike. And so I never actually practiced in California. I've only taught law and, and written. I edited the L.A. Lawyer Magazine Entertainment Law Issue for about 10 years. So in that respect, I guess if I have a specialty <laughs> over the last 20 years, it's been entertainment law, but only because whenever I'm with lawyers, they always want to talk about show business, and whenever I'm with writers, they always want free legal advice. So I have to keep 
both of those muscles from atrophying. You said 1988. Were you a member of the Guild in 88? I was. I came out to L.A. in uh, 86 and got my uh, first job working at the very first program Fox FBC ever aired, The Late Show Starring Joan Rivers, oh. uh, which was uh, a real birth and fire for a young writer because it was so high profile and taking on Johnny Carson. And uh, as I said, it was the first Fox show and I stood about five feet from Rupert Murdoch when FBC first went on the air uh, in October of 1986. And then as soon as that ship began to sank, I was one of the first rats off it and went to The Tonight Show and, and was working there when we went on strike in uh, 1988. So that got you in the Guild was the... The Late Show with yeah. Joan Rivers, that's right. Okay, wow, okay. So you've been a member since 1988, okay. 80, 80, 87, I guess, is when I, when I joined. What made you switch from lawyering to storytelling? Well, I, as you say, I had been an undergraduate at Harvard and wrote for the, uh, the Harvard Lampoon, which is... The, nation's oldest humor magazine, as we were fond of saying then, and probably still true. And we, uh, uh, I saw a lot of my classmates and colleagues come out to L.A. and go to New York and get jobs in TV, working on the Saturday Night Live and The Tonight Show and uh, The Letterman Show. And uh, meanwhile, there I was toiling in the fields of law in South Florida, and uh, one of the uh, colleagues uh, was a woman that I had dated as an undergraduate uh, who uh, came out to L.A. and started working in sitcoms, and she got her agent to call and say, uh, will you, uh, if you come out to L.A., I'll, I'll get you a job in TV, and I said, well, I'm, you know, I've, I've I know what agents are. I don't believe you. And he said, no, really. And I said, well, if you can say it twice, I guess it must be true. So I, I asked for and got a, a three-month sabbatical from uh, the law firm. And I'm now in the 22nd year of that three-month sabbatical. And I've been married to that woman for 19 years. Oh. And uh, so it, it pretty much, you know, if it falls apart at any point, I guess I'll go back home and, and uh, practice law again and live with my parents. <laughs> Now, how similar is lawyering and storytelling, and how diverse are they? Well, I get fewer headaches uh, as a writer than I did as a lawyer, but, you know, there, there's what I did, I, what I actually practiced was appellate law, and uh, writing, you know, 40 to 100 page briefs was something that, as a young lawyer, they looked to me uh, because of, I guess, the stamina of youth that uh, <laughs> we all have, but uh, there's a great deal of storytelling in uh, uh, certainly in trial practice and in, in a lot of uh, a lot of the appeals work that we did, writing that long a brief, you do have to uh, enunciate a fact pattern that involves storytelling. But I never wrote for or worked on any kind of law show, any of the David Kelly shows, or never did that kind of writing. Most of my career has been joke writing and and then for the last 10 years or so in, in animation. And there's not a lot of parallels with uh, the, the law there. But I find them whenever I can. Interesting. I'm not a writer. Um, as I went on the strike line every day, I've learned some things about the craft and the profession of writing. And I learned that a lot of writers have mentors or advisors. I didn't know that. Can you tell me who your mentor or advisor was? Well, I got hired on the tonight uh, on the on the Late Show by a, a writer named Hank Bradford, who uh, had been the head writer on the Tonight Show in the '70s. And I mean, his credits go back to the 60s, and I think he worked on your show of shows in, in his earliest uh, uh, writing days. And, I mean, this is a guy who I, I never saw make a 
bad joke, or I never, I mean, he, his instincts were utterly perfect when it came to structuring a joke and being funny. And uh, I give him enormous credit for not only giving me my first job, but then helping me to get on The Tonight Show and just being a real uh, mentor. And it, the funny story I'll tell about him was that when we, uh, when I first submitted to The Late Show, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, had bought a a $3,000 IBM PC that probably has about as much memory as the average cell phone right now. And so we, she, she bought this PC, and, and I had been used to, from the law firm, working on WordPerfect 1, 1.0, wow. I think. So there I was writing the spec material uh, with, you know, five-inch floppy drive uh, WordPerfect 1.0 and wow. unable to turn off the right justification. So I had this document that I printed out on a, on a daisy wheel printer that was two one and two line jokes that were perfectly justified left and right. And, and it, they just look, you know, to look at it now it would have been very, very bizarre, this, this block type. But I submitted it to Hank, who, you know, as I said, it worked for many years, I assume, on a, on a, uh, a manual typewriter and, uh, or possibly an, ele- an electric. But anyway, he called me up at my apartment and said, uh, these are the best type jokes I've ever seen. And some of them are, are funny, too. And, and that's, <laughs> so I assume my, my typing skills and my computer skills were uh, what got me into the business and trying to keep up with them ever since. Okay. Very interesting. I, I did an interview with, uh, well, actually, I just held a mic in front of uh, uh, Harlan Ellison and let uh-huh. him rant. Yeah. And I got a typewritten postcard from him because he did not believe in typing on the internet he didn't say that was writing it requires foot pounds of energy fascinating yeah anyway i wonder who harlan's mentor was or is that would be curious to know okay you put yourself in service to the guild in numerous ways first you served as secretary treasurer then in 2005 you were elected president of the guild with an overwhelming 68% of the vote after pledging to devote 30% of the guild's budget to organizing writers in television, reality television, excuse me, animation, cable, and independent film. Why did you run for president? What motivated you? Well, I had been on the board, actually, before I was secretary-treasurer, and I got involved with the guild. I mean, I've been a member since 87, but I really wasn't involved until the mid-90s when I started working in animation, as I said, and and my first uh, animated experience was on a show called The Critic with John Lovitz, which, you know, after, at that point, this was 94, so after about seven, eight years in the Guild, where all of the work that I had done earned me pension contributions, I had health insurance, and was getting residuals, and now I was working for a network primetime show with people I had known for years, Mike Reese and Al Jean, who created the show and had worked on The Simpsons for, at that point, about five, six years, that created the show. They brought in a staff of writers, myself included, who had all worked in sitcoms or variety and all had guild credits and were used to the guild benefits. And here we are working on a non-guild show because of the history of animation. Was this at and Klasky? No, the that was... Was it film? I think it was, it was film, film Roman. Roman that did uh, the critic, but it was it was through ABC originally and Gracie Films, and at the time The Simpsons wasn't covered by the Guild either, and King of the Hill had yet to come along. But when they their first two years or three years of existence, they weren't covered by the Guild, and and again this was I had been a member of the uh, the Animation Writers Caucus as a result of the critic, but by the second season, you know, we were all getting to the point where we were 
our, our health coverage was lapsing and uh, our uh, you know the pension term you know you can't vest if you don't have coverage through a certain number of years and my wife had gotten pregnant and we were looking to have our first son and there I was without health insurance uh, even though I was you know working full time and and on a network primetime show and so at that point vowed that if there was a third season of The Critic, we would organize it and we would get it covered. Well, as it happens, there wasn't a third season of The Critic, and I went to work for uh, the Jim Henson Company and did a, a Muppet show for two years, which was covered, and my guild service fell by the wayside. But then in 1998, Fox ordered uh, a season of, of episodes of Futurama, which I went to work on, another Matt Granny show, another show that was going to be not covered. At the same time, they ordered Family Guy uh, in its first incarnation, and uh, along with The Simpsons and King of the Hill, all of the writers on those shows, and there were almost 80 of us on those four shows, wow. uh, were organized by the Guild to get those shows covered. And the anecdote we heard at the time was that uh, it went to Peter Chernin, and, and they told him that the Simpsons writers wanted health insurance, and he said, give it to them. So that was one of the easier organizing drives that the Guild mounted, uh, but it was our first real venture into getting animated programming covered. We'd gotten the show The PJs covered a few months earlier, but and I say we, I had nothing to do with it, but the Guild had gotten it covered. And and I sort of have been the caboose on that uh, organizing train for, uh, for 10 years now that uh, we got every primetime network animated show covered. I, I ran for the board of directors. Uh, and then in 2001, I served on the our negotiating committee and tried to push coverage for feature animation and cable animation and and we were unsuccessful at that point haven't been terribly successful since then but i continued to obviously be involved in the guild got elected secretary treasurer and then in 2005 after our 2004 negotiation where i i served on that committee as well i was part of a movement of writers called writers united that was particularly unhappy with the sort of state of affairs in terms of the way the guild was doing outreach and was involving membership and was dealing with the other unions and guilds in this town and elsewhere. And so myself and a slate of 10 other candidates, two officers and, and eight board members, ran on a sort of three-prong platform to uh, organize uh, our membership and prepare us for the upcoming negotiation now passed in 2007-2008 to also do external organizing, particularly in animation and reality TV and nonfiction cable and independent film. That's what you're referring to many <laughs> months ago when you asked this question. And uh, third, to do some outreach to the other unions, Screen Actors Guild and DGA and, and uh, also unions outside of the entertainment industry. So, so that was yeah. our program in 2005. We were elected by about a two-to-one margin. And uh, that was part of our rebuilding of this union. We let the executive director who was then in place go and replaced him with David Young, who was a career organizer, and, and uh, redesigned uh, this institution into one that was uh, an organizing union that uh, could actually reach out to its members. And, and as a result, we put together a, a pretty successful strike and a successful negotiation. Yeah, I think you did a great job. Are you from a union family? My father belonged. Uh, my father uh, is, I guess, still a member of, of uh, a, an electronics engineers union. He worked for Pan American Airlines in the 1960s and belonged to uh, that union. Um, my mother is a, is a teacher and belongs to a uh, uh, the teaching union in, in Florida. 
So, uh, so yes, I guess I am. Okay. Let's move on to other things. I'd like to talk about technology because I think the Internet and new media are at the heart of this strike, and I want to talk about the technology behind that, if we may. Sure. Out of curiosity, prior to the strike, did you download or stream new media? And if so, what appealed to you? Well, I myself uh, still get most of my television through my television. <laughs> um, and my kids, of course, who now control the TiVo that we have, uh, I watch a lot more uh, Zach and Cody and, and <laughs> Hannah Montana than I otherwise would. But uh, nevertheless, I, I didn't I didn't really sample TV on the Internet as much as um, some have and, and will, and I expect to in the future. My wife, uh, as she was writing her last uh, spec script, I know, told me that she... Uh, in order to just catch up with episodes of programs when you write a spec, mm-hmm. I think she was writing a spec, Rescue Me, just went online and was able to download them and, and, uh, and stream them. And that, I think, is, is obviously the future and, and where the vast library of our material is going to go. We, you know, in the last five years, we've gone from a push environment where you watch whatever is on at any given moment to a pull environment. Yeah, I read that. I said, technology, you have, I'm quoting you here, it said, technology has changed the entertainment game from push to pull. What does that mean? Yeah, well, when, you know, we grew up, uh, or at least I grew up in an era where you watched what was on the three networks when it was on. You, you didn't have the means to time shift. You didn't have the means to program your own uh, schedule and the same with with feature films. You saw what was ever in the theater, or or if you lived in a place that had a revival house, you'd go to that. But that's the push mentality. That's the push environment that that uh, you know existed in entertainment for generations, and and now people can self-program and and you you can you certainly go to the theater and see what's there or you can wait a few weeks or months and just go to your local video store and watch whatever movie these days uh, virtually anything is is extant out there on dvd you go and you rent it or you now download it and same with tv i mean uh, i watched the entire run of the sopranos without really knowing when it was on just knowing that by you know late sunday night early monday morning it was there on tivo and i could watch it and and i watched it when i wanted and without you know the being or locked into a certain time space and that's that's the pull technology you take it down off the shelf when and where you want it okay so in your user experience with the internet or with tivo what things became apparent to you and informed you from a legal perspective and an artist's perspective as you went into negotiations? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were very attentive to the fact that we couldn't design a residual formulas the way we historically had based on, on runs, based on, That's you know, okay. something, something airs and then it's rerun. We have in our contract uh, historically very good fixed residuals for broadcast television that gets rerun at a certain time and place. But that obviously was not going to be the future, that there was going to be in a pull environment a lot of programming that just didn't have a rerun that was either streamed and was, you know, was posted and literally put on a, a cyber shelf that you could pull down whenever you, whenever you wanted. And so when we got into negotiation, we, we had a fair number of proposals that were based on revenue earnings uh, of the uh, production entities and, and the, uh, the distributors. We were very attentive to the mantra that when they make money or when they get paid, we get paid. That became very 
essential to us, that we wanted to share in the distributor's gross revenues. And that uh, is ultimately what we got, particularly in downloads and in the, the streaming of library product and what we're moving towards over the course of this contract when it comes to streaming of new product. That was really what informed us more than anything was when they get paid, we get paid. Okay. I imagine the negotiating table to be a lot like Dungeons and Dragons, with each participant having unique strengths, weaknesses, and abilities. What makes you think I've ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Did you? Actually, I didn't. But, oh, okay. But I certainly fallen with, with with a crowd that did. So, <laughs> so I'm very familiar with it. Uh, so you brought a legal background and a writer's experience to the table, and I'm curious who on the negotiating table on either side has expertise in technology, new media, or computer, or internet, or anything like that. Well, on our side, we had uh, Chuck Slocum, who uh, is our assistant executive director at the Guild, has been here for about 20 years. I mean, he is our tech guru. And quick anecdote, when the Directors Guild uh, invited us over during the strike to give us the results of their $2 million study on new media and new technologies and basically uh, made a presentation to us that detailed everything that Chuck had already shown us and there wasn't really anything new in their presentation that we didn't already get from Chuck uh, the the first thing that became clear to us was well you know they spent two million dollars on this study we should give Chuck a raise because he was able to do what he did uh, on his regular salary so so he was at on our side of the table and we were uh, very reliant on uh, a lot of you know our members who are expert we have a new media caucus here and we have uh, a fair number of, of our members who have uh, direct experience with new media. But uh, the other side, I have to say, I mean, their labor negotiators uh, in the alliance, in the AMPTP, you know, were really not very well versed at all and were extraordinarily disinterested in uh, making any inroads into new media and and told us so from the start. Their initial proposal was, let's just do a three-year study of new media and and leave in place all the terrible formulas that we're unilaterally imposing. And, of course, we rejected that outright, but uh, they continue to press that. Even several weeks into the strike, they continued to say, they, they, one of them used the phrase, you, you need to embrace the DVD formula for new media. You need to embrace it with open arms, which, of course, is physically impossible to embrace something with open arms. But nevertheless, it, it, was, it was what they said. They were bound and determined to keep the bad traditional formulas that they, for you which they the bargained. You mean the old media formulas? The old media formulas for, for home video <laughs> and apply them to, the, to new media. And I don't know if that was necessarily because of, of a lack of experience or or interest in the new media technology so much as they were the cheaper bad formulas that they had gotten unions to take for 25 years and we were we were not about to do it we we kept insisting look bring in bring in uh, your your tech people bring in or at least bring in your CFO or somebody that should have some understanding of how this money is being made yeah and and where this business model is is going and and you know a lot of what their presentation was based on especially when they eventually got into the discussion of a fixed residual for streaming they said if you there's no business model here yet if you want a percent of revenue it's going to be nothing and we said that's fine we'll take a percentage of nothing if it means going forward that we get a percentage of whatever you get. And they, of course, uh, fumbered and, and refused <laughs> to, to accept that. Uh, and it took a long time before we finally got to that point. 
Okay, so now we got to that point. The contract is about to be ratified or rejected this coming Monday. We'll, we'll find out. Um, let's talk about the contract. What are the long-term gains? Well, obviously, there are, there are two major gains in this, in this contract. One is jurisdiction for creation of new content for new media, webisodes, mobisodes, anything that's made for the Internet, the Writers Guild covers if it's done by a professional writer or if it's derivative of uh, existing programming, heroes, webisodes, or lost mobisodes, or if it's over a certain budget threshold. And what's important there to understand is that, you know, previously the companies could just do this stuff, and if they wanted to, they could make it, WGA and DGA and Screen Actors Guild. Now they have to if they use a professional writer or if it's derivative or if it's over these budget breaks. And, and you know, it was, it was a real struggle because they wanted to be able to be competitive, they said. They wanted to be able to compete with the guys dropping Mentos into Diet Coke on, <laughs> on YouTube. They wanted to be able to deal with the, the guys out generated. there. All of that. Yeah. And, and which was actually something that we think worked our benefit in this negotiation because I think the users out there, the fans and, and the viewers of, of, you know, new technologies, new media understood that, well, they, they understood that mantra of when they get paid, we get paid as well. And so there was real support for, well, it's a good idea to give your creators a portion, a share in the, uh, in the new media uh, business model. And so in addition to actual, you know, initial compensation minimums, we, we get our pension contribution, we get health insurance, there's reuse, there are what we call separated rights, which are essential to this contract. It, they basically say that in the event that you create something for the Internet that goes on to be a television show or a feature film or a, a line of bedsheets, etc., that you actually have your, uh, you have some control and some financial interest in that. And so separated rights in new media was, was very, very important. The second, that's all part of the first okay. big gain. The second big gain was was reuse online, namely the uh, films and TV shows that would be downloaded, that would be streamed. Uh, we actually get a percentage of distributors gross in all of those uh, reuse platforms. And it's actually the first time in our history that a new media pays a residual royalty that's higher or equal to the previous technology. In other words, when television or when film went to television, we were paid 2%. When it went to cable, we got to 1.2%. When it went to home video, it went down to 0.3%. Now with the Internet, it goes back up to every, anywhere from 0.7% up to 2% for, for streaming. So it's actually the first time that we're at, we, we've reversed that trend of uh, lesser and lesser residuals. We now have a, a bigger residual than the, than the last generation. Okay. Um, one of my listeners, I have two types of listeners. I have a lot of writers because I'd go on the line and mm-hmm. tell them about the show. But I have a lot of listeners who are not writers. They want to be writers. One of my listeners is a writer. He wanted to know, now that the writers are participating in internet revenues, do you think you should eventually get the initial window for online repeats to be based on revenue or even metrics instead of time? Um, Is there any chance of, and then I want to know as a SAG member, is there any chance of actors asking for that in their current negotiations? 
Uh, the answer to both questions is yes. I mean, as we negotiated this contract, the window was something that we didn't especially like. We understood that it's linked in current deals to the initial broadcast. In other words, when the production entity makes the network exclusivity deal, that includes anywhere from four weeks or more of reuse on the Internet streaming uh, without additional compensation to the producer. We, I don't say we, we wanted to be attentive to that. We were forced ultimately to be uh, attentive to, uh, to those contracts. And, and so we, it was hard for us to eliminate the window altogether. What we got, however, was uh, an agreement from the companies that they would supply to us the contracts and access to all the information on the deals that are being made so that going forward as you know the production entities begin to make deals where the network exclusivity does not include the uh, internet reuse that we would know about it and we could structure deals uh, our collective bargaining deal in 2011 for example would hopefully not include a window or would include initial compensation that would pay for that window. Unfortunately, right now, we had no evidence to debunk the uh, mm. the company's assertion that the streaming, the first few weeks of streaming, is part of the initial broadcast and is part of our initial compensation. The Screen Actors Guild is certainly welcome, and we will support and encourage their uh, efforts to try to break that, those windows and try to, to reduce them or, or eliminate them altogether. And by the way, then we have a, a favored nations agreement with the companies that if uh, Screen Actors Guild gets uh, improvement in that regard, that, that we would get it as well. I'm curious, will profits from anticipated Martian colonies be reserved for writers as well? There's a story that I think is attributable to Charlie Kaufman, although <laughs> I don't know for a fact that it's him. But I know of some writer who claimed that, you know, all the contracts, they always say, the boilerplate language says that you get, the companies retain the rights in all media now known and in the future on this, in this universe and any others, et cetera, et cetera. And he wanted to exclude Mars. <laughs> he wanted to keep Mars out of the contract just because it was a lark. It was a joke. But they wouldn't. Whatever company, they wouldn't take Mars out of it because they wanted the rights to Mars. You never know what will happen. And the, the lifetime of copyright in this country continues to get expanded. So the possibility that we'll have you know, distribution on Mars has to be uh, something that they want to protect. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. Okay. That was part one of a conversation with Patrick Verone, president of the Writers Guild of America West. Be sure to download or stream the second half of this interview when it's made available on Wednesday, February 27th. Until then, you have been listening to the Writers Strike Chronicles podcast. For more information, go to our website, www.strikechronicles.com. To contact us, please call 310 310- Four three nine eight seven five four, or send us an email at info at strikechronicles.com. 